Hi, my name is Fritzi Horseman, and welcome to Compassion in Action. Today, my guest is Rick Ramish, the former executive director of the Colorado Department of Corrections. Rick Ramish, who has decades of experience working in numerous areas of the criminal justice system, was appointed by, as executive director of the Colorado Department of Corrections by Governor John Hickenlooper in July of 2013. During this time with the CDOC, Rick has successfully implemented prison reforms in Colorado and except for 15 days maximum punitive segregation has ended the use of restrictive housing, also known as solitary confinement. Rick is recognized as a leader on prison reform and is highly sought after to participate as a subject matter expert on both the national and international level. He has testified on correction matters before a U.S. Senate subcommittee involving the overuse of solitary confinement and has participated in numerous forums on corrections at prestigious universities, including Yale Law School, New York University School of Law, and New York City's John Jay College. Rick has also assisted and been a member of the U.S. delegation to the U.N. meetings in Cape Town and Vienna to rewrite prisoner standards now known as the Mandela Rules. He has authored a number of correction articles, including in the New York Times, and has also been profiled by them. Rick Ramesh, welcome to Compassion in Action. Well, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to, um, to speak with you because you seem to be one of the experts about the, uh, the devastation of solitary confinement. And I'd like to start the interview talking about, uh, you spent three shifts, which is about 20 hours inside a solitary confinement cell. Can you talk about why you did that and what you experienced in those 20 hours? Sure. Uh, a short time after I became executive director of the Colorado Department of Corrections, um, I was basically charged uh, by Governor Hickenlooper to continue the reforms that my predecessor had initiated before he was horrifically assassinated. And as part of that, um, you know, we formed a number of committees. I put together a team that I told them, um, you know, this is where we're going. And, uh, you need to, to help me get there. And so we had a number of committees that put in input, but as part of that also to keep all of our staff informed, we put together a newsletter that we sent out often that talked about uh, what we had done, where we were going, what we were going to do, uh, just keeping everybody informed. So as part of our reforms, I thought, well, maybe it's, I should walk the talk. And so I spent uh, 20 hours in our supermax prison as an inmate um, in solitary confinement. And I did that because I was going to, uh, as I say, walk the talk, uh, write an article, put it in the newsletter and just talk about my experience and, and what I felt uh, was the, the main reason or reasons that we should really reduce the use of, of segregation. But once I got out and started putting my notes together, I thought there's probably a bit more to this than just an interior newsletter. So I gave it to an advisor to the governor and he took a look at it and said, um, yeah, this, this can go somewhere. Where would you like it to go? And I knew that the New York Times had been writing for a couple of years about the overuse of, of segregation, but hadn't been getting any, any legs behind it. And I thought, well, maybe they'll, they'll want it. Well, they wanted it and, and they printed it. And 
I knew, of course, when the article was going to come out, but uh, the advisor called me at, at 10 o'clock the morning the article came out and said, Rick, I've never seen anything like it. And I said, you know, what's, what's that? And he said, virtually every major city in the United States has printed that article. Um, and our reforms took off, took off from there. And when you spent those 20 hours, what did you, what was the feeling like in there? What was, what was your sense um, about what was so horribly wrong? You know, it didn't take long to realize that there's just something wrong with, with this. You're, you're put in a cell the size of a parking space. There's really nothing in it. I went in as uh, what was called an RFP, which is removed from population, which meant I went in with just basically uh, my uh, offender uniform and uh, towels and, and toiletries and things like that. So, you know, I got my stuff put away in about five minutes and then I did some exercises for a while. And, and uh, you know, ironically, I thought, when I prior to going in that I thought, you know, this is going to be okay, because I've been putting so many hours in at work that I'm just going to lay back and, and rest. Well, it's not, it's not quiet. It's, it's um, not sensory deprivation, it's sensory overload, the noise, the, the banging, the screaming, um, the, the cell checks it, uh I probably got um, 10 minutes total sleep in those 20 hours. And I'm a pretty good um, uh, person as far as uh, determining what time it is during the day. And I lost all concept of time. In fact, uh, my staff uh, was instructed to take me out of there at, at three o'clock in the afternoon the next day. And I thought three o'clock had, had long come and gone. And I thought my staff's paying a joke on me. And I thought, no, they're not. They're not going to be playing a joke on me. And and at three o'clock on the dot, I was I was taken out of the cell. But you know, it doesn't take long for you to do things like counting paint chips on the wall, uh, cracks in the floor. Uh, you know, trying to think of things when your mind's going numb. And you know, it only took twenty hours for me to realize that this is really not a, a good practice, and this is something that we should we should do everything we can to curtail and, and hopefully end. It's a tool that should be taken out of the toolbox. Absolutely. And why do you think it's, people are having such a, why is it still, why does it still exist in basically the 49 other states in the United States, plus the, the max that's in Colorado? You know, it was a practice that of course, uh, began many, many years ago at Eastern Penitentiary and, and, uh, um, and uh, by a religious organization. And they felt that complete isolation, an individual would reflect in, in within themselves and, and determine that they shouldn't be committing crimes anymore. And what actually happened and, and was determined fairly quickly was that they didn't reflect, they became insane. Um, yet the rest of us kept that practice going on. So one of the things I, I told my staff was, you know, we know it hasn't worked for a hundred years. Let's try something different, and we can always go back to the back to the way it was. And and so the the point being is that it was a tool that was put in a toolbox. Um, it was over started to be overused as a result of prison overcrowding back in the in the seventies, and uh, when everybody was losing control of their prisons because of the overcrowding, and it was felt that you know we need a place to put these really awful people and regain control of our prisons. 
um, the fact of the matter is there is uh, you're sending someone out worse than when they when they came in. But up until probably you know ten years ago, there was very little data on the uh, negative effects physically and mentally of those that were placed in isolation. But now there's so much out there that talks about um, not just emotionally and mentally, but physically and, and neurologically that really it's something that, you know, I, I told our staff when we first started this was, you know, the overuse of solitary is to run a, a more efficient institution. You know, you take someone that you don't like or has or committed a violent act or has done, violated your policy, and I call it the steel door solution. You put them in an isolation cell and, and slam the door shut and walk away. Uh, but then I said that, you know, running an efficient institution is not our mission. It's a noble goal to want to run an efficient institution, but our mission is public safety. And the fact of the matter is, is that, um, you know, we're releasing people worse than when they came in. And, you know, when I first started, I started asking myself some questions and, and three main questions kept popping up, which was, you know, when did we ever put someone in a, in a cell the size of a parking space for decades? And when did we ever put someone that was mentally ill in a cell the size of a parking space, letting the demons chase them around in that cell? And when did we ever take someone that had spent years in solitary confinement and release them directly into the, into the community? You know, I had heard stories from our staff about, you know, when someone was, was, uh, had spent years in solitary and was taken out by two officers, because two officers always take people out of, out of um, isolation, uh, put them into street clothes and then put them into um, leg chains, belly chains, um, handcuffs, have them do the inmate shuffle, which I call it the inmate shuffle because you can't walk right with, with chains on your legs, um, taking them to a, a public transportation, putting them on a bus, public bus, taking the, taking the shackles off and, and leaving the bus. And I've told people if I was a bus driver, I'd stand up and scream at the top of my lungs, run. I mean, what are we doing? That's, that's, not, that's not public safety. You know that person's coming back and you know that person's gonna do something really bad before they do come back just because we sent them out worse than they, when they came in. So those, those were practices that, that we had to stop and we, and we did. And the irony that what you're talking about is that one of the people under um, in Colorado was released straight from solitary and he's the person that assassinated the former um, director. Yes, he had some mental health issues. He was a white supremacist. And um, after about seven years in, in segregation, was released into the community, uh, cut his monitor off, got a handgun, uh, ordered a pizza. Uh, the, the media called the person a pizza deliverer, which of course he was, but he was also a full-time employee of, I think, IBM, uh, a father of three. And uh, had him tape a rambling statement about the evils of segregation, murdered him, threw him in the trunk of the car. And then we presume uh, took his uniform and the pizza went to my predecessor's residence, uh, rang the doorbell. And when he opened the door, he was, he was murdered. I mean, that's, I mean, that's just a, a horrifying example of, of what's, what we're creating. We're not creating functioning citizens. We're creating uh, we're, they're worse than, than when they came in. And 
Um, where's the accountability is one of my questions is who authorizes people living in ADSEG? I mean, sometimes they're, they're put in ADSEG for having $5 in their cell or for mouthing off at an officer. And so who authorizes this, this and how, how come there's no oversight, do you think? I authorize it. I mean, when I say that literally, if people in my position um, allow those allow those policies, uh, that's the problem with with a number of policies. I can tell you what Colorado's policy was, and most states had the same thing: is that those that are deemed to be too violent uh, to be in general population can be placed into into solitary. Well, that makes sense, but then there was the caveat attachment to that, or those deemed to be too disruptive to um, running the efficient uh, institution. Well, that means anybody you just said, if I don't like you, um, if you said something I didn't like, if you did something I didn't like, uh, you could be placed into, into solitary. And there, there were two types of solitary and in some states there still are. Um, one is punitive segregation, which you violate um, a policy, uh, you may commit a violent act, uh, anything that that um, violates your department policy, you're given a punitive sentence into um, segregation. In Colorado, it was up to 90 days. After that, there's a hearing, and if you're deemed to be, quote, too dangerous or too disruptive, then you go to what's called administrative segregation. And then what hits you is what Colorado had and, and is gone now, all those are gone, but um, a number of states had the same policies called the level system. And whenever I hear if you earn your way in, you got to earn your way out, I, I cringe under the under the level system because that's a system where you have to make it through level one doing certain things. And that can be a, a fairly lengthy period of time. And then you go to level two, same thing, and then level three, and it can be up to level four or five or more. But the problem is if you have a bad day at level three, and God knows no one ever has a bad day, but if you do, you go right back to level one and you start all over. And that's how one week becomes one month, becomes one year, becomes five years, becomes 10 years, becomes 20 years, becomes 25 and away you go. And, you know, to add to that, if someone has a mental health issue and is placed into solitary, typically they're placed in there because their mental health issue has caused them to violate a policy that oftentimes they don't understand what it is anyway. And then once they get in, there's no way they can get out because their mental health issue prevents them from going through these level systems. Uh, so we banned it. Um, we, uh, uh, Colorado is very progressive, had two facilities dedicated to um, those with mental health issues. However, um, that progressiveness stopped at the point where there was still segregation in those in those units in those prisons and some the seriously mentally ill had been in there for for years well a short time after i got there uh, we banned it and a really good sergeant that was working in our facility for the most serious mentally ill emailed my deputy and said you're going to get someone killed and a couple months later uh, i was taking a, a professor um, through there on a tour who was doing some criminal justice reform uh, writing. And that same sergeant was working and unsolicited the professor goes, so with these reforms, have incidences dropped? And the sergeant smiled and, and said, yes. And the professor said, by how much? And the sergeant said, by about 80%. And 
what we had done, instead of putting them into solitary, um, the staff got together, came up with some really good ideas, and we uh, built, they built, uh, I didn't do anything, they built what we called uh, de-escalation rooms. Took former solitary confinement rooms, soft color in the cell, a comfortable chair, some de-escalation materials, a chalkboard if they wanted to write, we piped in calming noises like waves and winds and, and wind and rain and things of that nature. Open 24 hours a day, seven days a week, unlocked, could come and go as they pleased. And um, I was out there one time and there was an individual in it. A couple of weeks later on a different day at a different time, I, that same individual was in the cell and I thought, oh, bureaucracy's crept up on us again and they're get back to putting people in solitary. And I, after a tour I was on, I took the warden aside and said, what's up with that? He goes, oh no, um, uh, I should, should say she said, oh no. And she said that uh, he goes in there five to seven times a day. Well, that's five to seven times a day is not exploding on someone. And where it used to be um, touring those facilities after these reforms, every time I went there, I felt I was seeing a miracle. And the miracle I was seeing was that instead of having two officers escort someone to treatment in chains, there were groups of 10 or more unescorted going to programming and, uh, and doing great. And so uh, those were the types of reforms that, you know, we had a former Supermax, one was empty, um, but my predecessor, a brand new one, had it open for a short period of time and then his reforms uh, closed it. And then the supermax that I spent uh, my time in Colorado State Penitentiary, we repurposed that. It was still a high security facility. But can you imagine a former supermax where now employers were coming in to interview inmates for employment pre-release? Re-entry units, um, walking in a former supermax and seeing um, offenders out in, the, out in the walkways, ironing their clothes, uh, pictures on the walls, uh, some units that were unlocked, they were incentive units, uh, former uh, cells that were used for solitary confinement and were now day rooms, uh, and you'd walk through, and, and the climate was so much more positive. And it's not just on the inside of the door. Um, one, and this doesn't get talked a lot about, but on the outside of the door, can you imagine, a supermax, you don't, you don't see a lot. Um, the things you do see, you don't want to, but uh, you hear a lot, you smell a lot, the banging, the screaming, the throwing themselves against the door, the throwing of body fluids, the suicides, the self-harm, the mutilations. Um, can you imagine as a, as a officer spending eight to 12 hours or more a day for sometimes years in those facilities and then going home and your partner says, how is your day, dear? Well, my day sucked. It really sucked and I hate it. And the difference um, between once we made our reforms of the staff interacting with the offenders and vice versa and, and people getting along, and I'm not saying all incidences dropped, but, um, or it went away because they didn't, but they dropped. And the difference was, was absolutely night and day. And we got back to our, what I felt was our mission, which was trying to do everything we could to, um, prepare and help those 97% that do go back to the community to return in a safe and great manner. Well, I mean, it, it just sounds like common sense. And 
the life expectancy of a, a correctional officer in the United States is 59 years old. And so what you're describing is dealing with that kind of adversity on a daily basis is, is injurious to their health, not, not to mention their family at home. The suicide rates are 39% higher than the national average for correctional officers and divorce rates are 20% higher. Um, you know, I have the utmost respect for, for correctional officers uh, to me, and I've got a 40 plus year background in the criminal justice system. Uh, in all kinds of positions, but to me, that is the most dangerous, difficult job there is. And so, everything that that we can do um, to lessen that, um, I think, I think we should. And and that is one of the things, which is, you know, you put someone in a in a uh, solitary cell, um, they're going to come out angry. And the angrier they come out, the more people are, are going to get hurt. So, unless you're going to keep them in there forever, which typically you don't. Um, you better have a different plan. It's, it's time to go to plan, time to go to plan B. Um, so what are some of the adverse effects that you've witnessed and the people that have exited solitary and come back to general population, or as you've said, into, into society? I mean, what, what are the things that you've witnessed? Well, you know, we knew when we started our reforms that we couldn't, uh, our first simple philosophy uh, was just open the door. And now, of course, that's complex to do that, but we knew we were the ones that controlled the door, so let's, let's do something about that. But we also knew that we couldn't open the door, let folks that had spent years in, in solitary, put them back in general population, pat them on the back and say, have a nice day. It wasn't gonna work. Uh, so we developed uh, what we called step-down programs uh, to kind of um, help them re-enter back in the general in uh, back in the general population, and it, it, they became quite effective. Uh, a few things we didn't realize was that uh, we had about 250 that refused to come out, and we thought it would be way too ironic to go in and physically remove people from cells we probably physically put in to begin with. So we did three things. Um, that were quite effective. One was um, a really bad form of, of therapy, which is at the door therapy, where you have your, your clinicians go to the cell door and, and just talk to them and, and give them treatment. Uh, the reason that's not good therapy is because um, offenders uh, don't wanna be talking where they think other offenders can hear. So if there's another offender at the, the door on the cell next, next to them listening uh, through the food slot or whatever, uh, chances are they can hear the conversation. But again, that's uh, the only type of therapy we could give at the time. Um, the other was incentives. I call it bribes, but um, others call it incentives. It was giving them you know, more canteen, more access to, to different things, um, phone privileges, things of that nature. For those with mental health issues, uh, what we found to be the most effective was we have a, had a very strong uh, therapy dog program. And we found that they came out for the animals. Um, there was one individual that spent 10 years in, in solitary with mental health issues when I got there. When I asked why, I was told he had verbally threatened to assault a correctional officer. I said, did he? And the answer was no. And my response was, don't you think we ought to let him out? Well, he wouldn't come out, um, but I was giving a tour uh, and he, he was out. And when asked why, um, he said for the dog. And when asked why the dog, he said it was the only 
stable thing I had in my life when I was growing up as a child. And, and so you get responses like that. And um, um, then they became effective. And I can say that with our step-down programs, a good number of, of people that had been in solitary in the past didn't come back, um, didn't become discipline problems. Uh, the, you know, uh, what we tried to do was, was try to decide and figure out what caused them to be put into solitary to begin with. The reason solitary doesn't work, at least in my mind, and I'm you know, but not an ex expert by any means, but I felt that the reason that it's so ineffective is that they only go in there um, with two thoughts. One is that they don't care what happens to them and they, they just take off, which is what kind of got a number of them in prison to begin with, is they just react to something. Um, the other is those plan and they know exactly what's going to happen to them when they do it, but they do it anyway. And so that tells me that um, it's time to, time to do something different. And, you know, the offenders in Colorado aren't any different than the offenders in any other state. I mean, we have the gangs, you know, we have the addicts, we have, um, you know, the, the sexual predators, uh, you name it, we have it. And so... I always thought that uh, you could put our programming in any state and have the, have the same effect occur. Uh, now, you know, I had a vision, but the fact of the matter is I, I could have all the visions in the world doesn't mean anything if I don't have a great staff that can pull it off. And Colorado ha it has a great staff. And, you know, I'd give you an example of that. Um, the warden of the Supermax, he was, he was dead set against what I wanted to do. And, but every time we gave him a reform, he would do it and then we'd give him another one. And once he did that, we'd give him another one. And when he saw the results, he became such a strong believer that, uh, and so progressive and effective that I was able to appoint him as director of, of prisons at the time. And he, he's to this day is doing a great job. And now he's a, a deputy executive director right under the executive director. So um, those are the types of people that I wanted um, on the team. What kind of reforms are you talking about? What, what were the things you would throw at him that he was resistant to, but then came aboard? Well, when I said that, you know, Colorado, we started with, uh, punitive segregation, 90 days. Then we took that down, I think 60, and then we took it down to 30. And then it was 15, and then I think we eliminated it at that time. Um, uh, and then administrative segregation, which could be just go on long-term forever, we uh, ended that and then just stuck with the 15 days of, uh, of solitary for restrictive housing, as it's now called. Uh, for men. Uh, for women, we banned it. Um, a female offender, if they're involved in a violent act, they can be placed in a restrictive housing cell for 72 hours as a cool down period or until people find out exactly what it was that, that happened. But after 72 hours, they um, had to have the permission of my deputy uh, to keep them there. And that never, nobody ever asked for permission. It didn't occur. Uh, as I said before, we, by policy, were able to ban uh, 
uh, placing those that were seriously mentally ill into uh, segregation. And then working with the ACLU, the legislature and the governor, we were able to pass a statute that codified that. Um, and so we, we had that. And uh, we had no juveniles in the system, but if we did, we wouldn't have placed, placed juveniles. So those were the, those are the, main, the main reforms that we enacted. And we had started, um, I started in July of 2013, and I believe by January of 2014, we had stopped uh, releasing those that were in um, segregation directly into the into the community. And I'm using I'm interacting terms just because I'm so I'm so used to it. But for those that may not be familiar, solitary segregation and restrictive housing are all the same thing. It means you're placed in a in a cell the size of a parking space for 22 hours or more per day. Um, and that's also a bit of a misnomer because when people say that, then the next question should be, what do you do on weekends? And uh, oftentimes on weekends, they're in 48 hours for the weekend because staff is less. And so they aren't, they don't come out at all. Um, so that's a, that's another, that's another issue that needs to be addressed. One of the things you mentioned, I think it was when you were talking to at that hearing that Dick Durbin created, you said, why 22 hours? Why can't it be 15 hours? Why can't it be 12 hours? So who came up with the 22 hours of solitary? Um, any ideas? Well, it's, I mean, historically, it, it, it could be um, 23 hours and could be 24 hours. And then as the courts intervened, uh, we're talking years and years ago, then it got down to 23 and then to, uh, and then to 20 to 22. But uh, the point is, is, is why uh, the reasoning is uh, they uh, corrections felt that they should be in these cells for as long as they can possibly legally keep them in it. And so, uh, you know, that's kind of the difference between uh, European countries and, and the USA. Uh, and when I say the difference, the main difference is, and I had the opportunity to to work on the Mandela uh, rules uh, with the UN. And it became very clear that those countries that were working to change, to rewrite those inmate um, rules, based it on human rights. And in America, we base it on civil rights and whether that be court forced or statutorily or whatever. And that's a, there's a huge difference between the, between the two. So it's, you know, it's, it's historically just how long can we possibly keep them in? Um, so you mentioned the Mandela rules, which is, I've wanted to talk to you about that. How did you come to be part of that, that coalition? And what was that like? It, it, that one fa has been fascinating me since I had learned about Alfred Woodfox who was in solitary for 43 years. Yes, I've had the chance to sit on a, a couple of panels with him. He holds the unfortunate record of spending the longest amount of time um, of anybody in the U.S. Uh, in uh, uh, in solitary. And I might add, uh, you know, when when he spoke, he was able to keep his mind straight, um, doing a number of different things that worked for him. But what he had also mentioned was when he was out in the community because he was ultimately released from prison. Even if he knew the community, he got lost very easily. 
because his vision wouldn't focus on anything far away. And, you know, when you can imagine all you can see as far as you can touch um, for years and years and years, it's, yeah, it's, it's going to physically, physically affect you. Um, the Mandela rules is a whole different, I mean, everything's a story. And it was, this was fascinating to me also, which um, I happen to be uh, doing some work and some lecturing uh, with Judith Resnick, uh, who is a professor at Yale Law School, but also at the time oversaw what was called the Lyman Foundation. And the Lyman Foundation has done a lot of work with correctional, the Correctional Leader Association, which is a national organization of correctional executives on the overuse of, of solitary confinement. And there's a couple different Lyman, Lyman reports out. Well, through that, I be, had a, a, what's become a, a friendship relationship with with Professor Resnick and we were at a meeting and, and talking about um, the reforms we were doing in Colorado. And she said, um, you ought to go to Cape Town. I had no idea what she was talking about. And I said, well, what do you, what do you mean? And she said, well, the UN is meeting in Cape Town to rewrite inmate standards that have not been rewritten since 19, the 1950s of all things. And I said, I, I just, I can't do that. I don't have the funding and I'm like, you know, I'm pretty sure the state won't fund me to go to that. And, and she said, um, I'll get you the funding. And um, she lined me up with another uh, professional friend, David Fothy um, who's the national head of the prisoners movement uh, rights uh, for the ACLU. And he and I had become professional friends and he was going as a uh, non-governmental expert. And uh, uh, so Judith got the funding faster than I got permission to go, frankly. And um, that's through the, uh, uh, just a wonderful man. But, uh, but anyway, um, I thought I should let the State Department know that I'm that I'm going, and I called them, and they said, "Well, our contingent's full," because they thought I was asking if I could go with them. And I said, "No, I'm I'm going with the ACLU, and uh, to be a, a expert for them." And I happened to call uh, Bernie Warner, who was the head of Washington uh, State Corrections at the time, because I didn't want to go somewhere by myself and just kind of sit there. <laughs> so, um, so he and I went and we met up with, with uh, David in Cape Town, uh, which is a brilliant place to have the meeting because uh, of course uh, where Mr. Mandela was, um, was incarcerated was right off uh, Cape Town. And, and by naming it the Mandela rules, it, in a way put, put some pressure to, to, get things, to get things done. Well, right after we got there and started making some recommendations, the State Department then approached us and asked if Bernie and I would sit at their table and help them. And David, of course, uh, being David, he thought that was just fine. And so now we became um, expert witnesses for the, for the US. And a couple of things hit me <laughs> pretty remarkable was that uh, Bernie and I were about the only people with a background in corrections out of all the countries that were in that room. And I thought there were ambassadors, there were diplomats, there were bureaucrats, but there were no corrections people there. 
And I thought, how can this possibly be? But then when I determined that, as I had said before, that they were dealing with human rights, they didn't need corrections people there to talk about human rights. I mean, it's a good thing we were, we were there because some of the terminology in the 1950s language was being misinterpreted and we could say, no, you know, this, this isn't right. Um, and the other thing is that it's not a majority vote and the majority wins, it's consensus. So it meant that if one country didn't like one word in one sentence, it wasn't gonna pass. And I remember I was so proud of myself that I was able to stand up and get one word in one sentence. I couldn't tell you what that word was today, but the fact <laughs> of the matter is just that we were able to move this thing forward and the dedication of these countries to pass these, these standards um, was remarkable and the hours they put in. I mean, uh, just, uh, we're talking countless hours, but they passed and of course the U.S. doesn't follow the Mandela rules and, uh, uh, but most countries do. And as a result of Cape Town, we were asked, uh, Bernie and I, to go to Vienna to, uh, to finish and to, to have the vote occur. So we went to the U.N. in, in Vienna and got that done. And then as part of my work, I was asked uh, to go to Warsaw uh, to assist a number of countries with forming a work booklet on enacting the, Man the Mandela Rule. So it was, a, it was a fascinating journey. That's incredible. And can you kind of explain more? You say there's human humanity rules and there's versus civil rules. And, you know, I, I think of the civil rights movement and I think, well, that's great. That's, we moved the needle there, but um, it doesn't sound like civil rules are very good for people in prison. No, I, I mean, when I talk civil rights, I mean, that's kind of often that's uh, at least for corrections because of the policies they had in the past, you know, the courts would step in and go, oh, no, no, you, you can't do that. And, and it would frankly force them to do what should be done. But human rights is a consideration of what's the right thing for this individual as a, as a human being? What should we be doing that's morally and ethically correct? And, you know, the European countries, they strive for normalcy for those that are in, the, in their systems. And they think like I do, which is the, the, the greatest thing you can take away from an individual is their freedom. And, and once that's done, now when they come to the door, it's not a matter of, you know, people um, aren't sent to prison for punishment once they get there, they're sent as punishment to be there. And so once you understand that, you kind of leave at the door what they did. And I, I understand they did some terrible things, but you try and fix what's broken. I mean, that's, that's our job and to use the resources that you can. And that's where human rights and civil rights clash. Yes, because, well, and you mentioned in one of your interviews that co corrections in the United States is more about convenience or efficiency rather than humanity. Does that sound about right? Yeah, it, it, um, that's exactly right. And, and uh, what I've said and, and pretty much, um, uh, well, you, you covered it, but what, I, what, I, what I've said is that European countries invest in corrections mm -hmm. and America invests in efficiency in, 
not very well. And when I say efficiency, and this pandemic is a really good example of what, what efficiency, when you do that, what occurs. When I say efficiency, I mean, how many people can we pack under one roof to make it as cheap as possible? And then you have something like a pandemic where social distancing is almost impossible and prisons become bacteria factories. Where in Europe, um, give you a quick example. I, was, I had the opportunity to visit the, uh, the Swedish system. And Sweden has a population of about, at the time of about 10 million. And they had about 5,000 incarcerated. And at the time, Colorado had a population of about 5.2 million. And we had over 20,000 incarcerated and that was just state inmates. And so I tell people, I met a lot of Swedes when I was over there and they were really nice, but they didn't seem a lot nicer than Americans. You know, and the point being is that we, we just simply over incarcerate. But as part of that, uh, also um, the director at the time, Nils Olberg, um, he and I, you know, I've, I've been over in his system. He's been over in Colorado system and uh, he oversees everything. So when I talk about what they, when they have 5,000 incarcerated, he oversees what we would call the federal system, the state system and the county jail. He oversees all of it. And when he visited us and he went out to one of our facilities and, and he saw um, the number of staff per offender ratio he came back and he said, you know, Rick, do you mind if I send my union officials over? And I said, no, of course not. Why? And he said, well, we don't have hardly any violent incidences and they don't. But he said, we had a bad one a couple months ago and the union is now demanding two to one staffing. Now one is America because of the number we have incarcerated could never afford two to one staffing. But if we had something like even one to five staffing, um, we could turn the world around. You know, it, um, one of our facilities uh, in Colorado, which had over 2000 offenders in it, I'd walk through there and I'd look around and I'd go, what am I supposed to do with these folks? I mean, if I had 2000 nuns under one roof, they'd start punching each other out, you know, it's, and that's efficiency versus investing in corrections. In Norway, if you become a correctional officer, um, you spend paid by the government two years in school before you work full time in a prison. And it covers everything from mental health to, to um, for your own mental health to offender mental health, uh, reentry and, and everything in between. I used to tell my recruits, I, I'd tell them this uh, when they went through their, I think it was four to six week academy and said, hope you learn a lot because you're, you're going to need it compared to, compared to Norway. And, uh, uh, but again, that's investing in trying to turn people around where, you know, we kind of, like I say, just put as many under one roof that we, that we can. Do your, do your recruits uh, spend time learning about mental health? And because as you know, um, prisons have become the default place, the default place for the mentally ill. Um, all the, the three largest mental health facilities in the United States are the Cook County Jail in Chicago, the Los Angeles County Jail in Los Angeles and Rikers Island in New York City. So that's what we're doing with our mental health problem. And I know that you, you mentioned that in one of your interviews that you were dealing with a lot of mental health issues. 
Yeah, I'm, every people, every person in my position, my former position, can stand up, slam their hand on the podium and say, we are the largest mental health institution in our state and corrections is. You know, one of the biggest myths out there is that we deinstitutionalized the mentally ill. No, we didn't. You know, we closed a number of hospitals that should have been closed because of the way they were run. But plan B was never put into effect when all those closures took place. And plan B was we're going to take the money and we're going to give it locally so that they can have their own mental health treatment facilities within their communities. And that money was never given. So plan B was never, was never fulfilled. And then as part of deinstitutionalizing, someone brilliantly said, oh, and by the way, we're going to hold them accountable for their actions. Really? So we would hold people accountable for like stealing a sandwich in a convenience store that they were hungry and because of their mental health issue, didn't think that this, they were stealing. They thought I'm going to fulfill my need to be hungry. And then they'd get out of the county jail and they'd become disruptive and they might spit on an officer, which is a felony and in a way, in a way you go. So uh, yes, um, we became the largest mental health facilities out there and, and unfortunately still are. Um, you know, that raises a, raises a number of issues, but um, again, that's where, for instance, Colorado dedicated to two facilities for those with mental health issues. And um, one other thing that we did that I, I didn't mention for our reforms was that if a policy uh, violation occurred, there was a team of clinicians and, and correction officers that would determine that if the, a mental health issue caused that violation, they were immediately removed from the discipline process and placed into treatment. Wow. That's incredible. Um, oh, but still, do, is mental health part of the curriculum for the, the recruits? Oh, I'm sorry. I got oh, way no. off pace. Yes. I mean, for, I can't say for everybody. Uh, for Colorado, it, it is. It, um, you know, mental health first aid, uh, spend a lot of time now, much more time talking about those type of issues than, you know, how do we force our way into a cell and, and do some of these physical things. Uh, and yes, and you know, like we started out when we banned um, in our mental health facilities, the use of, of solitary, uh, our most serious uh, facility, we started as an all volunteer unit and um, some we had to unvolunteer, but, uh, but that, worked, that worked fairly well. But yes, um, you know, mental health first aid, um, there's different type of interview techniques and uh, you know, no one has more contact with someone in prison than a correctional officer. So the more tools we can give the correctional officers um, to work with these individuals, the, you know, the better off everybody, everybody is. Um, one part is, is recognizing um, those that are starting to escalate. You know, every serious incident that I was aware of where someone with a mental health issue committed a violent act um, prior to our reforms, in the reports, you'd always read something like, yes, I was noticing that this person was talking to himself more, or I noticed he was doing this, or I noticed he was doing that, and it never, it never went anywhere. 
Uh, you know, the other issue too, is not just the correctional officers. I had clinicians, mental health clinicians tell me that the only reason they were now staying is because of our reforms. I mean, who is a mental health clinician wants to walk by a solitary cell and see someone in there that's seriously mentally ill, screaming and, and doing things and allowing them to, not allowing them, making them, making them stay in there. Um, I walked by one cell when we, prior to our reforms being started, and uh, individual was, was smearing feces on the wall, which, which is not uncommon. And, you know, I asked one of the clinicians, does he do that every day? And the answer was yes, because everybody was nonchalantly walking by this cell. And I said, does he do it all day? And the answer was pretty much. Then the next obvious question was, does he do it when you let him out of the cell? The answer was no. Well, light bulbs don't have to go off to say, let them out of the cell, you know? And if the majority of suicides occur in segregation, and they do, guess what's going to go down if you get them out of segregation? Your suicides, you know? I mean, so you had mentioned common sense, and, and yes, to me, it's, it's common sense. It's incredible. And, and I wonder, one of the things um, some of the states are doing, they're limiting the use of solitary for juveniles and mentally ill, but the actual act of putting someone in solitary creates mental illness. So does, do they now, do they let people out once they become mentally ill? Do you understand? Do you, do you see the sure. irony? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I have often said that I believe that placing someone in a segregation cell for a lengthy period of time, either manufactures or multiplies mental illness. I'm a, I'm a firm believer in that with no clinical background whatsoever, except being a EMT many, many years ago. So, but you don't have to be a professional to realize. I mean, it's, it's, it's I, I've told people that um, it doesn't take long sitting in that cell to realize there's something terribly wrong if you're gonna be placed in there for a period of, a period of time. Um, everything goes numb. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I, you can earn books and TVs. Um, I talked to one individual, he said, I don't care if I have five TVs in there. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't make any difference. You're sitting in there by yourself. And I, I think maybe this pandemic, you know, never waste a crisis. But one of these things, I don't know about you, I'm not in a cell the size of a parking space, but I'm spending a lot of time in my house and I'm frankly, I'm sick of it. And for the first time, I want to get back on an airplane again, you know, and imagine spending this period of time sitting in your closet. You know, when I, when I talk about efficiency versus um, corrections, you know, you can talk about, and I'm going a bit beyond the subject here, but but it kind of adds to it is, you know, how would you like to, would you buy an apartment or a house where your sink is attached to your toilet? And how about every time you wanted to wash your hands, you had to bend over your toilet to do it. But if you want a really good experience and you can do this tonight, everybody can or tomorrow for breakfast or lunch or whatever, grab your meal, 
go sit down next to your toilet with the toilet seat open and eat. I mean, that's what we do. And that's a solitary cell. You know, the only thing in there is a stainless steel toilet attached to a sink, a little writing area and a steel bunk and a little mattress. You know, that's that's it. I wanted to go back to um, the Mandela rules and creating the Mandela rules. Um, I'm still up, so just kind of devastated at the idea of sitting in your bathroom eating a sandwich also. Um, I'm, but I don't want to forget this. Um, what made you decide on 15 days? What was the, How did we come to 15 days as being torture? After 15 days, it would be torture. Um, Juan Mendez, who was working with the UN, um, with the repertoire, uh, he made the statement that over 15 days in solitary is torture. Um, you know, he quantified that a little bit later and he said, you know, when I said that, I meant the countries where you've got a dirt floor and a, and a hole in the, in the ground for a toilet and no windows and uh, it was filthy, but that, that stuck. And so the UN had that in, in their language. And when I got back and we were doing our reforms, um, I, uh, I thought, well, let's, you know, I had to have a number somewhere. I, I, I thought that the staff has done so much, but I wasn't quite sure everybody's ready for me to go. By the way, it's all banned right now. Um, so we went with, with 15 days um, based on, on Juan's statement. Uh, but I also felt that probably if I was still there, that 15 days of 22 hours would now be 15 days of four hours out. And, you know, people say, well, four hours isn't enough. And, and my response is, you know, our step-down programs, we had people out for four hours. And we started out just having a group out for four hours just to socialize with each other. And then once they were able to do that um, in a decent manner, determined by the clinicians, then they did another step-down program four hours out, but got, got programming. But it wasn't a, oh, by the way, guy, we feel great. We're patting ourselves on the back. They're out for four hours. The whole thing was, let's get them out for four hours so then we can get them out in the general population or get them out for six hours to eight hours to 10. So it's not, you know, four hours shouldn't be setting the bar. Four hours should be, let's, um, let's start with that. And once we work through that, let's, let's, just keep, let's just keep going. You know, a question I got asked a lot and still get asked, a couple of them get a lot of questions, but one is, what do you do with the most violent? You can't, you can't let them out. Well, one of the other philosophies we adopted was that you can restrain, you don't have to isolate. And so we couldn't, we refused to use cages like some states do. I'm not putting someone in a, in a big cage um, to sit in the floor with other cages for treatment. Uh, we developed, uh, they made, the staff made um, restraint tables. And you could seat up to four offenders at these tables that were restrained to the tables. And we, uh, you could call it forced treatment, I guess. Um, you know, I'm in Wisconsin now. So if I talk about something, I usually have to throw cows in there because we're the Dairyland state. And so I should talk about cows. But Colorado, I, I figured I should talk about horses. So, you know, everybody's heard the adage, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. 
Um, I don't believe that. You know, my thought was if you take the horse and throw them in the water, they're going to get some water just trying to get the heck out of the pond. And so the, the programming we gave, we just started giving them programming. And of course, they didn't listen attentively at, at first, but then they began to, and then they began to interact. And then our goal was not to just have them out for four hours for treatment, but was to have them out for four hours for treatment, then to have them out for four hours without restraints, and then to have them get back in the general population. Um, same with the seriously mentally ill was having them out four hours. Uh, we with uh, some, some great psychiatrists and outside assistants developed a national model known as the 10 and 10 program. Uh, that was done before I got there, but that program was um, get those that were uh, being restrained with mental health issues out for 10 hours per week for treatment and then 10 hours per week for other activity and then ex expand on that. And that became a very effective, a very effective program. So um, that's what we did with the, with those that were, that were violent. And again, it was, you know, let's address what's causing the issue to begin with. And, uh, uh, and we did, and it became, became very effective. Are there any success stories that you, you can recall of either a mentally ill person or someone in, in someone really violent that, you know, kind of recovered that, that, that sticks out in your mind? Yeah, there's a couple of them. Um, one I didn't mention also, we, we um, ended death row, which is those that obviously are sentenced to death, but any, in most states, if you're on death row, you're in, you're in solitary confinement or restrictive housing 22 hours per day. But we only had three on death row, but we, we ended it. And um, um, one of the stories was one individual incredibly violent. Uh, he murdered a correctional officer. Uh, he should, in the same incident, murdered another one um, with a knife. They uh, slit their throats. And uh, uh, severe mental issues. Um, was placed in, in solitary. And when we started our reforms, his response was, yeah, I'll come out, but just so you know, you've left me alone and I've left you alone. And if I come out, I'm gonna kill someone. And the clinician said he will, and he has fantasies of decapitating people. Wow. Well, I did a, right before I left, I did a, another op-ed for the New York Times on why we ended solitary in, in Colorado. And when I was putting that together, I told the editor, I said, you know, I'm violating my own policies every single day. And she said, what do you mean? And I, I mentioned this individual and her response was, well, we need to put that in the article so we're not misleading anybody. And I said, no, I, I certainly get that, but let me call just to be sure. And so the director of prisons called the prison where, where he was at, called me back and said, oh, no, no, he's out four hours a day. Not every day, but uh, said the warden um, told me he just finished walking the yard with this individual. Um, the success of that isn't 
I mean, this person murdered correctional, a correctional officer. That's something I'll never forget. So the success in my mind was we made it safer for our other correctional officers by treating him better and by giving him treatment instead of giving up, you know, regardless of whether being on death row or not. And, uh, and so the success to, to me was that this, this allowed our staff to be safer than they, than they were before. Um, we had a group from, from New York come out. I, I was very open and, and anybody that wanted to come in for the most part um, allowed them to come in and take a look at what we were doing. So a lot of advocacy groups came in and one out of New York that was pushing to end um, solitary confinement in New York came out. Um, and uh, one of the members was uh, one that had changed his life around, had spent many years in prison, great guy. And uh, anyway, we, my, what I told them was, look, feel free to talk to anybody. Um, you can talk to supervisors, you can talk to clinicians, correctional officers, offenders, and without any oversight, it's up to you. Well, I didn't know at the time of the tour, but I, she had sent me, a, the woman that had planned this, sent me an email after she came, got back to New York and she said, you know, we went out there fairly cynical thinking you're just calling a rose by another name, you know, and you're not doing anything. And, and uh, um, she said, but I got to tell you, uh, we came back with such a much different impression and feeling really good about what you're doing. But I, I have to tell you that, that our former inmate went into a cell uh, of an individual who had spent years in solitary and was now out because we no longer had solitary in that facility, our former Supermax. And uh, the, the, the advocates said to the offender, is this the real deal? And the offender said, not only is this the real deal, but if this had been enacted years ago, I probably wouldn't be here today. And so that's the ultimate success. And, and knowing that him making that statement in all probability, when he did get out, he wasn't gonna be back. I, uh, we had one that uh, we started along with forced programming, forced reentry units. And um, six months or so before folks were gonna be getting out, whether they wanted to or not, they went into a reentry unit if they were high security people, um, former solitary folks. And I went into one unit and uh, here was a, a gang member. Then um, I kind of, I, I walked out of there going, I hope no other members of his gang saw this. But uh, uh, what I saw was there were tears running down his eyes as he was telling me for the first time, I think I'm going to make it. I mean, so those are, the, those are the stories you hear. And that's how you change the world. Um, thank you for that. Thank you for changing the world. Um, I want to ask, what can we do? What can we do as a society? What can we, can we do in California? What can we do to start implementing the great work that you did in Colorado? I mean, you know, when are people just going to stop 
creating more, more victims basically is what you're saying that, that solitary creates victims, whether it's, you know, homicide or suicide, it creates victims. Yes, I, I agree. And, you know, it's, um, one thing that there's oftentimes finger pointing at, at people in my former position, you know, your head of corrections, this is all your fault. We all have bosses. Mm-hmm. You know, there's legislators that believe that, uh, and I've heard some of them, um, you're in prison. That's your, that's your problem. You know, what, whatever happens is that's not my problem. That's your problem. And so corrections would, would tends to be, incredibly underfunded in those types of philosophies. Um, you know, there are some governors that don't want to address um, these types of these types of issues. And, uh, but I think now, uh, you know, courts that in the past wouldn't touch for the most part, solitary confinement. They, they just said, you know, this is an area we're not gonna tread, but now they are. Um, they're starting to look at the mentally ill being placed in, in solitary, pregnant females and females and juveniles. And I, I think that um, this is just going to continue. So I, I think, you know, when, when people ask what they can do, there are some noted experts, um, neuroscientists, psychiatrists, psychologists, um, physicians, that mental health experts that have all this data now and, um, you know, some of it is just simply so strong and so amazing. And the more that that can, that can get out there. And I, I think the other thing is, in a bad but good way, because of having so many people incarcerated, almost everybody knows someone that's been in prison or, or you know, has been in jail. I know I do personally. I mean, and, and so... Me too. Uh, you know, it's, it's now it's not just happening to someone else. Now it's happening to people we know. It's happening to family members. Um, it's happening to people we care deeply about. And, and you know, I, I think the more that attention can be brought on, on, on corrections itself, transparency, you know, that's always been, oh, no, you can't, you, you can't come in here because that's a security issue. And and if we allow filming or whatever, and I've thought, you know, you can probably go online and get a blueprint of every prison in the United States if you wanted to, if you if you knew how. Uh, and and so I think the more transparent, um, the better off the better off everybody is. And I, but I do think corrections. There's no question in my mind over the last decade, corrections has changed tremendously, in a positive way. That doesn't mean there's not a long ways to go because there, because there is. But, um, you know, I, I think, again, just keeping, keeping pressure on. I, there's a lot of talk now about, you know, I can't tell you the number of people that have asked if I would appear before a particular state legislator, legislature to talk about what we're talking about today. And, and I, I typically won't do that. Um, I'll talk about Colorado. Uh, but I won't go in and, and say what another state should do because that's that's up to what other you know what the other state should do. That's not uh, again. There's politics involved and and different philosophies and and frankly, some think what I've what we've done in Colorado is just dead wrong. Um, I heard the other day that uh, um, 
Ono Ramish, he, is, he didn't do what he said he was doing in Colorado. He just shipped all his restrictive housing inmates out of state and gave them to other states. I hear things like that and I just shake my head and I go, are you kidding me? Um, you know, as a sideline to that, there's part of an anti-violence program that we have that's pretty effective where we take some, uh, if you've got time, I'll explain it to you fairly quickly. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, um, David Kennedy's a, a, a professor at, at um, John Jay University at least he used to be, I don't know if he still is, but um, to age myself, Boston was having a terrible uh, weapons um, time, all types of gunshots and wounds and, and overuse of firearms. So he initiated a plan called Operation Ceasefire. And what that operation was, was when, when the violent parolees were being released from prison, they appeared before a judge, the DA, the police chief, uh, those that were heads of like human services and things of that nature. And they were told that these are the things that we have to help you make it. But these folks over here, if you commit a violent act with a firearm, we're doing, we're dropping a hammer on you. And it, it dramatically decreased um, these types of weapons violations in Boston. So I had the chance to, to meet and talk with Professor Kennedy and on some other issues. And when I got to Colorado, I, I thought, I've got this great deal. I'm gonna do the same thing in Colorado that he did in Boston. So I called him up and I, he said, I said, what do you think? He goes, yeah, I think it's a great idea because I was helping Washington implement it a couple, you know, a while ago. And I thought, huh, you know, here I go again, having a great idea, which is a day, a day short. But it was still a good idea. So what we did was uh, offenders were told, basically, here's the programs we have to help you. But if you commit a violent act against a correctional officer or against mm -hmm. another offender, once the criminal charges are done, we're going to move you out of state. And, uh, um, you know, wardens, when we started that, and we had maybe 20, I think, that we did that to, the warden said, what do you what do I tell the parents when they say they're out of state, we, we can't visit them? I said, tell them what I'm gonna tell them. Their son has been deemed to be too violent to be in the state of Colorado. And you're partly responsible for that. And if you're respons partly responsible for having him behave himself in the state he's in, we'll relook at this and bring him back. Now, and so that was my anti-violence program. But part of that is um, we worked with several other states in doing that. But whenever you do that, you get back what you gave. Meaning that if I gave an extremely violent inmate to one state, they gave me one and sometimes two back. And then they fell under our policies and our offender fell under theirs. So, um, you know, we weren't, we weren't moving anybody just so I could say we ended solitary confinement. But again, those are the types of types of naysayers you hear when there's people there that think, well, you can't do that. Well, yes, you can, because we did it. And come on out and take a look. And I, and I told virtually everybody, come on out and take a look. And, and, a, and a lot did. We had some corrections executives from Alaska come out, um, took them through our number, our, a couple of our prisons, took them through our supermax and our former supermax and took them into the conference room 
when we were done, I said, do you have any questions? And there was kind of dead silence for a while. And then one of them looked at me and he said, do you mean to tell me that this is your highest maximum security prison? I said, yeah, it is. And he was astounded at how quiet it was, at how the interaction between um, offenders and, and staff. And uh, I mean, for those that are used to something different, it was an amazing, was an amazing sight to see. Well, you brought transparency, I mean, not transparent, that's the next question I have. You brought humanity to corrections is what you did. You've, you humanized the prison system in Colorado. You know, I, to me, it, it, um, it was just the right thing to do. I mean, it was, and, you know, and some of these people have done some of the most terrible things and I, and I get that. And I would never try and convince a victim that anything I was doing was right for them because they have their own thoughts and they have their own just horrible dreams and, and things that have occurred. Um, but it was done for the community. I mean, mm -hmm. start with our staff and then start with the community. Um, I don't want someone going out angry. You know, I want someone going out that's going to be a, a tax-paying, ethical, moral citizen of, of the community. And so, you know, whether you call it the humane thing to do, it's simply the right thing to do. It's simply what we're supposed to do. And, you know, that's why, and, and this is kind of, I don't know, fluffy, I guess, but there's a reason we're called the Department of Corrections. Aren't we? I mean, otherwise call us the Department of Punishment or the Department of Failure or the Department of Efficiency, you know, but we're the, right. we're the Department of Corrections and, and we all have to have the, the same mission. So one more question about transparency, because to me, this is really, um, this is part of the problem with solitary, from what I can tell, is that we don't really know what's going on behind bars and how do we create a more porous, uh, porous system so that the people in the community know that there's, you know, 37 men in this prison in solitary. There's 87 men in this prison in solitary. And they've been in for 30 years. This person's been in for five. I mean, we need to know this, this kind of information so that we can make a decision that this is what we really want to be doing as a, as a community, as a society. Do you know what I'm saying? I, I do. And I think, you know, a lot of corrections departments are slowly starting to open up. Um, I think the, there's a number of benefits to doing that. Uh, I think in the past that um, although, you know, folks would say, well, for security reasons, we're not allowing the cameras or whatever in here or, or reporters. Um, I think part of that was they didn't want people to see what was, what was going on. Um, the other is that, you know, oftentimes depending on the, on who was, who was coming into a prison, um, you know, you get offenders that would make all kinds of allegations that were simply false. Some would make allegations that were completely true, you know, but trying to, trying to figure that out. I mean, so there was some, some concern there, but, you know, virtually every state that I'm aware of, a elected official, a state elected official, a legislator has the ability to show up at any prison at any time and say, I want to see this. Mm -hmm. Some do a lot, the majority don't, you know, and I, I think that 
Um, that's part of it. That's part of the responsibility about being an elected official is to, you know, to start to, um, you know, when I said open the door, it's, it's, I think there's a, a great benefit to, to having media come in. We had so many groups come in to take a look at our former Supermax and what we had done there that I, I think one, the staff acted differently, not because they were there, but because they were incredibly proud of what they had done. And I, I think the offenders, you know, there were instances I, um, I had a Wisconsin reporter that I knew come out and take a look. And uh, there was a group of uh, about 12 unescorted males coming back from recreation. And when she was introduced as a reporter, um, one started saying, I got to talk to you because I was raped three times. And, and he was laughing while he was saying it, you know, and, and she had been around the block and she was a crime reporter to know that, that this is just, you know, stuff that that's being said, but, uh, um, you know, I, I just don't think, don't be afraid of letting people in and no matter what's said or, or, or done, you know, during the, during the pandemic, I read, let's see, this one prison, no offenders were getting toilet paper. Not true. You know, I mean, some people will print anything. And of course, social media is, is, is its own type of media now where you, this stuff can get out. But, but really, the fact of the matter is, is um, show off what you have. Yeah. And if it's not good, um, show that too. Because there's always a reason why, you know, and, and is it, we don't have training funds. We don't have programming funds. Our prisons are falling apart because they were built in the 1800s and no one's repairing them. You know, we don't have the staff um, and we don't have the staff because they aren't being paid anything. You know, so there's all these, all these different things. You know, I don't know of anybody in my former position um, that would stand up and say, yeah, these folks deserve everything they can get. That's, that's not the case. We don't, we don't want that. They don't want that. They're a great group of people that, that uh, um, you know, you're much prouder of the good things that occur than, than the bad things that occur that, you, that um, might have a good result, um, even though it was a bad thing. So it's, it's just a matter of, of being vocal, staying vocal. Um, you know, talking that there's, like I say, there's so much data now. Um, there's so many uh, offenders that are that are willing to now to talk about this a lot more than they would in the past. Um, the Albert Wood Foxes of the world that that talk about this, and there's um, there's a lot of them. They haven't spent 40 plus years, but they've spent 20 plus years or 10 or or whatever, and they talk about the difficulty of once they get back into the community of just trying to function. Um, it's hard. It's almost impossible. Um, you know, you take someone that's been in solitary for 20 years, release them into the community, and they discover that there's no pay phones anywhere. You know, there's these computer things. Um, my goodness, you know, it's, uh, uh, it's complex. But like I say, it's, I'm proud of what Colorado's done. I'm proud of what the staff done, has done. It's the right thing to do. It should be done. Um, that tool should be taken out of the toolbox called solitary confinement. And, uh, you know, we should spend a lot more time figuring out how people get into solitary and why instead of trying to 
keep them in there and say we can't let them out because they're because they're too dangerous or they don't behave themselves. Rick Remish, thank you so much for your time and for your wisdom and for your advocacy. And uh, I hope we can continue this conversation in further, in, in more detail, although we've done pretty well, but maybe <laughs> we'll have some new news um, about some reforms that we can discuss. You know, I, I'm passionate about this. That's, that's fairly obvious. I, my interest in this started in Wisconsin where um, I oversaw Wisconsin Corrections and a warden at the uh, maximum security prison there said, I've got a problem. We've got about 100 solitary cells here and they're full. And uh, the majority of those in there are those with mental health issues. Mm. And so we gathered the staff together, corrections officers, um, supervisors, clinicians, the head of uh, our mental health unit, sat them down and, and I said, okay, this is, this is gonna stop. We're gonna get those with mental health issues out. Um, here's the timeline to do it. And oh, by the way, I don't have one penny to give you. And you know, the thing about these correctional staff is they can be and are so innovative that they developed behavioral health units unlike any that they had had before. And they found out a couple of things. They found out that a number of those with mental health issues they intentionally got themselves put into solitary because they were being preyed upon out in general population. Um, or they were so uh, mentally ill that they didn't know what the rules were, let alone follow them. And put them in these behavioral health units and kept the same clinicians dealing with them instead of bouncing them from clinician to clinician, which happens a lot in corrections. And those units became the quietest units in that prison. And one individual who had spent over 20 years in solitary at the time I left was doing well in general population and found that things that common sense things like, well, if they're being preyed upon, why don't we team them up with their buddy in the behavioral health unit? We'll make sure they share the same cell and we'll make sure that they stay together out in general population. And to add one more thing we didn't talk about, but, but is really ironic to me, are the states that were putting two individuals together in solitary confinement. Mm. How can you argue that folks are so dangerous they can't be in general population that you put two in a cell that you literally have to determine which step I'm gonna take so I don't run into you? or using the same toilet from someone that's standing five feet away from you or, or less, um, trouble's gonna occur. And, and how can you even begin to justify that? But it, it, I don't know if it's still being done. It was, it was being done. I hope it's not being done. Well, let's hope that solitary isn't being done. Right. <laughs> so one more, one more question. What are you doing at reimagining correctional behavioral health now that you're no longer working as the executive director in Colorado? Oh, I'm really enjoying what I'm doing right now. I'm a um, executive consultant for the Falcon uh, Group and they do everything surrounding behavioral health in prisons and jails and not just with offenders, but with, with staff too. So it can be anything from 
from culture to uh, developing new programs. And typically uh, what we do, and the reason I was hired, frankly, was um, to go into those facilities that are trying to um, redo and rethink their use of solitary confinement and help them develop um, programs to, to decrease or eliminate the, eliminate the numbers. That's, um, that's my participation. But uh, what we do typically is if a prison or a jail has a particular problem uh, in the mental health area, it, it may be suicides, it may be self-harm, it can be anything, frankly. Um, we go in, we take a look and develop a specific solution for a specific problem. We train the staff, we ensure that it's successful, then we pack up and leave. And so we're not the typical grab on and stay there forever. Um, we come in, we give a solution, we ensure that it, that it works, and out the door we out the door we go. We're um, working with a number of different states now, and and uh, again in, in my work of of getting those and keeping them out of segregation, particularly those with mental health, with mental health issues. But the other thing, reimagining, and that gets back to the efficiency versus um, corrections is we work with architectural units to develop behavioral health units within prisons and jails. And, you know, I believe personally that the way prisons have been manufactured um, they're built to develop violence within those within those walls. They manufacture violence. Um, you don't you don't drive up to a prison, look at it, and go, "Oh, I know I'm going to get some help here." I mean, you see this big concrete monster that tells you that I'm either going to be dead here, or I've got to be the biggest, meanest, baddest mother on the block to get out of here alive. And that's the attitude you have walking into a prison. You're either scared to death or you're going to become as, as nasty as you can. And so what we do is we spend a lot of time helping to design normalcy units in the behavioral health unit and uh, um, having it look more like a, more like a clinic. Um, being secure, of course, but giving that that feeling of normalcy and that feeling of I'm going to, I'm going to get some, uh, going to get some assistance here. That's incredible. That's that's called mental health. That's that's an <laughs> instead well, of yeah. You know, and the other thing, the other thing we do, and we're we're stressing and and, and trying to get this going, is diversion clinics um, at the front end get them into these clinics instead of getting them into, into prison. You know, um, with my law enforcement background, you know, I've made the statement that if I break a leg, EMS comes. If I break my mind, the police come. Right. And then I end up in jail and then I end up in prison. And, and so, you know, if we could think far enough to have some type of emergency mental health response team, um, I think things would be a lot different. And one of those would be front-end diversion into programs that would assist in keeping people in keeping people out of prison to, to begin with. So we do that, we do that too. It's a, um, we're unique. I don't know really of any other groups out there that, 
that do the things that we do. And that's very exciting to me and um, very interesting. I'm, I'm, I, this group is uh, an incredible number of experts that are, are brought together, psychiatrists, psychologists, um, corrections, um, everybody across the board. And we all work under Elizabeth Falcon, um, developed the company and uh, it's been very successful. Incredible. The only piece I think you need now is a re-entry piece so that, because uh, um, you got them at, at, at hello, you got them while they're in there and now when they're returning, just. Well, and we, and we do that too, because there's a, there's a large part of the behavioral health in, in re-entry. And, you know, yes. a, lot, a lot of states stress, okay, now you're out, get a job. Well, the fact <laughs> of the matter is now you're out and, and we can't have you working right now. You know, you've still got some issues that need to be, need to be addressed. And, and we've got a place that you're going to go to that we're going to help you address these issues. And, and then we're going to get a job once we make sure that you um, are comfortable and, and stable and, and can, can fulfill the conditions of your, of your parole or probation. So that's a, that's a re-entry piece that hasn't been really looked at like it, like it should. So, um, you know, we have programs, developed programs for that also. Well, one of the things I've noticed with the, the people that I've worked with in prisons that are now coming out is they have mental health issues. They have called what's called institutionalization. They don't know, like, they're not like Norway where they normalize the day. They don't make any decisions. They don't make, they don't know what it's like to use a cell phone. So um, I don't. Let me, let me tell you how bad it was when, you know, when I first got to Colorado, I think of, and I'm, mine's a bit foggy, but if I remember right, less than about 10% left prison with a, with a ID, state ID or driver's license other than a prison ID. So can you imagine walking into a bank and wanting to open up a bank account and you lay your prison ID down? I mean, red buttons are gonna be pushed, you know? I mean, it's um, try, and, try and get anywhere without a legitimate state ID. And so we, we put um, offices in some of our prisons to ensure that, that they would get IDs and, and we skyrocketed that percentage. You know, a birth certificate. Uh, there were some offenders that they didn't know what county they were born in. So they had no birth certificate. So they couldn't prove who they were. And so we spent a lot of time um, finding out and getting them, a, getting them a birth certificate. And that's just one small minor thing that you'd think, my God, you know, this is, how can, they, how can we send them out with, without that? Um, the other thing that some states would do and Colorado was one of them is that they give them a voucher card with no idea how to cash it when you're, when you're put out and, you know, no way to call anybody unless you borrowed a cell phone from a stranger. If you didn't have any family members or friends to help you. Um, I sat in on one parole meeting uh, and parole was doing a, a good job of, of preparing people um, to get back into the community, but they were out of prison. It was their first day. And I was watching one offender and there was no doubt he was scared. 
Mm -hmm. And I'm watching him and he said, they lost my voucher. So I have, I don't have one and I have no way to get home, which was not, he was in Denver and, and he lived in a city that was quite a distance away. And the parole officer said, well, we can, we can get your voucher. Don't worry about that. And then he said, but I don't know where to go to go to the bus station. And the officer said, well, we'll give you a map. And he said, I, I can't read a map. And it was the point where I was going to jump up and say, I'm going to drive you <laughs> to the bus station. My God, you're, you're killing me. And, and a, a parole officer said, we're, we're going to get you to the bus station. But it's, it's things like that. We had uh, one of the things we started using was virtual reality um, technology where um, becoming, at least for Colorado, quite useful where you would put on um, goggles or call them whatever, glasses, but by doing that, it would allow you to pick up your clothes, put them into a washing machine, turn on the machine, put them in a dryer, open a bank account, fill out a resume, cook a meal, all things that they hadn't done and didn't know how to do. And uh, um, so the technology is, is out there. It's just, you know, we've, we've got to use it. Uh, you know, tablets are a wonderful tool. Yet there are some states that, oh no, you know, we're not, we're not giving them tablets. That's, that's just too much. Well, what do you mean too much? You know, it's, it's, it's going to help them become citizens of, of the state. And, uh, you know, some have never touched a computer, let alone a tablet. Exactly. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, those tablets can be a, a, a wonderful thing. And that's maybe now, and again, a never waste a crisis thing of this pandemic is, you know, states, a lot of states are forced to use tablets now just for um, things like programming and, and you can extend that to visitation and in wonderful ways and, um, you know, opens up a whole new way of, of doing business in a, in a good way. Exactly. And then I don't have to drive two and a half hours just no. to visit a prison, but I like the visits, but I, it's true. And digital, digital, literacy is a big issue. I mean, I spent probably an hour just teaching one guy what the home button is on a phone just so he could figure out how to get from messages to emails. You know, and I consider myself technologically stupid mm -hmm. um, because I am. And so, <laughs> and I've been around this since its inception, you know, and I still, I still struggle. And uh, um, for someone that's had no training whatsoever, it's it's uh, it's going to be it's just a nightmare. You can't do it. Exactly those those wiring that's not in the brain. The brain no. hasn't wired that. So we had a. I mean, I think literacy, digital literacy classes in prison is is an imperative. And I know people have issues with cell phones in a prison, but getting a round of a cell phone is a skill that's mandatory. You know, I, that's a that's another issue. Is you know there are those that. Um, they have a horrible contraband cell phone problem. Colorado did not have that. Uh, but in the, in the studies, in the, the, some of the things I've read is that the main reason cell phones are smuggled into prisons aren't to continue criminal enterprises, although obviously some are doing that, is to stay in contact with their loved ones, yeah. which is what we want them to do anyway. 
And, and so at the time I was leaving Colorado, you know, tablets, they can be used as cell phones. You can still monitor them. Um, and, and so we were going to, we were going to do that. Uh, because the other thing, when you have um, telephones and cell blocks, you can walk into a block and go to the correctional officer. Okay, who controls, which, which offender controls this, the phone in this block? Mm-hmm. They'll point right to them. You know, so you stop that if there's if there's cell phone use via, uh, via the tablet, especially since it can be monitored. The other is, you know, there's all this problem with with drugs coming into the mail, ingenious ways. You know, soaking soaking envelopes in in whatever drug, um, putting LSD behind stamps. There's all this different stuff. But if you have email accounts for everybody. You can virtually stop the mail from coming in, email it in. You know, if your daughter wants to uh, paint you a picture, then paint it. And instead of mailing it, email it in. And if you don't have the capability to do that because of the technology on that end, then parole officers ought to be set up to help the family saying, come on in, we'll, we'll get that to them. Yeah. So there's, there's things that, a lot of things that can be can be done that uh, you know a thing about that i found about government is if as, uh, a lot of this especially in corrections or law enforcement if something goes wrong you punish everybody right and, and, and then you get three inches more policy and, and the reason you punish everybody there's a reason for it is when something bad happens and i had some things bad happen is they put you in a, a corner, throw gasoline on, on you and throw a match. You know, the media and the legislators and they just, the, the public, the, they just pound you. And, and so you stand up at the podium before this large group and go, and we're never going to let this happen again because we're going to do this and this and this and this and this and we punish everybody. Um, we tried to develop the policy. If, if one person does something wrong, let's deal with the person. And then we'll let the rest go on as, as normal. And uh, that makes sense. So anyway, that makes sense. I hated getting in trouble because of what my sister did. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, thank you again. And um, we're going to post this ASAP because we got to get the word out. It's time. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I appreciate it. Thank you, Rick Ramish, for an enlightening an inspiring conversation. 80% reduction in violence. The facts are in. Let's get together. Let's end solitary confinement. We can no longer sit idly by as we as a society continue to torture our incarcerated men and women. We are complicit in this because we are not. We are allowing it to happen and our tax dollars are paying for this. Write your congressmen, write your senators, write your governors, write the federal government. Let's end this practice. Let's regenerate our society. Let's heal the men and women living in prison. And let's be compassion ambassadors throughout the United States. Thank you again for listening. Please like, subscribe, and share this podcast. And let's get busy. We can no longer sit idly by. We can no longer just sit there. It's time to do something. Thank you.